The sermon text this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 31. This can be found in the Pew Bible on pages 833 through 834, or in the order of worship. Matthew 27, 1 through 2 and 11 through 31. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the... Let's pray together. With gratitude, with reverence, and with awe, And because the suffering that we are witnesses to in this text has purchased for us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh, how we long to offer you in these minutes acceptable worship. And I pray 
Father, for you to give us grace to join you in your exaltation in your Son. You delight in your Son. And he said to his disciples that the reason you love him is because you laid down, he, laid, he was going to lay down his life that he might take it up again. And he has done both those things. And so we know that with a volcanic intensity, you love your son and are loving him right now. And we are simply asking that as we Uh, study your word together as we sit under your word together that you would grant us grace to to be embedded in the current of your love for your son and that we would be carried in the spirit to him carried to him in adoration and in humility and in repentance and in faith and we pray today that you would be gracious and make this the day of salvation for many. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's just staggering to think. As Jesus said when he was arrested, Don't you think I could summon 12 legions of angels and my father wouldn't send them? Do you you really think that, that I couldn't get out of this if I wanted to? Every spit issued by a Roman soldier, every mocking word, he could have wielded power to release himself, and he didn't obtain his own release. Could have defended himself vociferously in front of Pilate, and he didn't do that. He could appear before us right now in a way so compelling and so powerful that there would be no room for faith. And yet he restrains himself. Why? Why? Because he is gracious. And all his sheep have not yet been gathered. Friends, the gospel according to Pilate is Jesus being punted away. Jesus being kicked like a can down the road to be someone else's responsibility, even though your conscience knows who he is. The gospel, according to Pilate, is hostility against Jesus that camouflages itself either in neutrality, feigned neutrality, or even flattery. 
The gospel, according to Pilate, is not a case of mistaken identity. It's, it's, the, it's the gospel being kicked away by someone who knows, whose heart has been confronted with the truth of Jesus' character and yet still weighs him in the balance and finds him wanting, finds something else more preferable than Jesus. It is so dangerous. It is the gospel, the gospel according to Pilate is Jesus passing like God's goodness, all of God's goodness passing right before your eyes and you letting him pass right through your fingers as quickly as you possibly can. The gospel according to Pilate, so ironically, is the gospel of the one who sits in judgment of Jesus only to be judged by Jesus. So this morning, I want to think with you about three judges of Jesus who are present, or, or three judges, if you will, of Jesus, that the three judges that Jesus stands before in our passage. The first is Pilate, the second is God, his Father, and the third is you. So let's think first about Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate as his judge. Friends, uh, one of the things that I have grown to love about love, love most about Matthew, I mean, I'm just grieving because Matthew's almost over. I have loved looking at Jesus through Matthew's eyes. It has been so precious to me. And one of the things about Matthew that I just love is he has such an eye for irony. And nowhere in his entire gospel, and I think that's because he was, an, he was an outsider who was from the insiders. So he would look from the outside. I mean, he was a, he was a tax revenue officer, right, who was a Jew. So, so he's looking. He just has such an amazing perspective. And nowhere is his ironic vision more acute than in the trials of Jesus, first as we saw last week before the Sanhedrin, and then again this week in front of Pilate. Nowhere is his ironic vision more acute than in these two trials. I mean, what could be more ironic than, than Jesus, the high priest, standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, and being charged with blasphemy for saying the truest words that have been uttered ever on planet Earth? the most God-honoring speech, to be the embodiment of God's speech, being accused of blasphemy. What could be more ironic than that? What could be more ironic now than Jesus' appearance before Pilate, the Messiah of Israel? Think about this. The Messiah of Israel being judged by a pagan Gentile. But, But don't miss what Matthew is showing us because the question of who is judging whom is not so obvious. Pilate sits as Jesus' judge but only because Jesus submits to Pilate as his judge. Pilate's jurisdiction over Jesus, this is is the amazing thing. Pilate's jurisdiction over Jesus is in actuality the exercise of Jesus's over Pilate. Here is the judge of the living and the dead, right? 
2 Timothy 4.1, he is the judge of the living and the dead, appearing, standing in the dock, as it were, before a man who one day is going to stand before his throne as the Son of Man. Here is Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. I, this, is, this just staggers me, rendering himself to Caesar. It's absolutely amazing because Caesar, in fact, belong, he's rendering himself to Caesar as though he belonged to Caesar. When in fact, Caesar belongs totally to him. This fact that, that in judging Jesus, Pilate is actually serving Jesus and his mission explains the two, what I think of as the two most striking facts that are established in Jesus' trial before Pilate. Two, the two most striking facts are, are the fact that Jesus is innocent and that Jesus is defenseless. Jesus' innocence is, is just so clear in this passage, and it's clear to Pilate. Pilate is not misinformed. This is not a mistake, right? I mean, the text is just relentless in emphasizing that Pilate's conscience is fully and accurately informed about Jesus' innocence, just like many of yours are. Pilate's knowledge of Jesus' innocence. So, so, I mean, we just have to take away, right away, that Pilate is some kind of victim of circumstance. He's not. There are at least four ways that the innocence of Jesus is established in the text. His innocence being known by Pilate. And the first is, if you look in verse 14, why is Pilate so greatly amazed that Jesus has made no answer to the many charges leveled against him by the chief priests and the elders? Well, the reason Pilate's amazed is because he knows, he recognizes. I mean, Pilate, Pilate wasn't born yesterday. You don't get to be the governor, a Roman governor, by being just some kind of hack. This guy knows these charges are false. He can tell. So he's amazed. He's like, you've got nothing to say to these charges? And then we get more clarity in verse 18 when Matthew tells us very quickly or very clearly that Pilate knew, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered, the, delivered him up. In other words, Pilate knew, his conscience was clear that it wasn't Jesus' moral guilt, but his accuser's moral guilt that explained his presence before him. And then, thirdly, there's the, the dream of Pilate's wife. Verse 19, her conscience is burdened. And, and can there be any doubt that this dream is the supernatural intervention of God? Because that's exactly what the dreams were in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The dream given to Joseph, the, dream, uh, the, dream, the dreams, the multiple dreams given to Joseph. Right? God is bearing witness to the innocence of Jesus in the life or upon the conscience of Pilate's wife and the message from her reaches him before he issues judgment. 
And then fourthly, there are Pilate's own directed missions in verses 23 and 24. He's maneuvering throughout this passage to try to get, he knows Jesus is innocent, but he finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place because there's Jesus' innocence. But on the other hand, there is such passion among the people particularly the leaders of the, of the people, for Jesus to be condemned. And Pilate tries to take advantage of this custom that he has. And he is hoping, he is hoping that someone else is going to make the decision for him. Boy, that might be true for you. Hoping that somebody else is going to make a decision for you with respect to Jesus, to get you off the hook. And he's subtly jockeying with Barabbas, hoping that the crowd would, by its own choice, choose Jesus, that the crowd would rescue him from having to condemn an innocent man. And his commentary while he's washing his hands, I mean, look, look at the testimony of this man's conscience. I am innocent of the blood of this man. The fact that you say you're innocent of Jesus' blood doesn't make you innocent. Knowing his innocence, Pilate nonetheless, I mean, just think about this. He, he knows his innocence and he uses him as a bargaining chip. He tosses him like a bone into the middle of a bunch of starving dogs to be mocked, to be hit, to be spit upon, to be stripped naked. He just uses him as a bargaining chip. He doesn't care. His conscience knows, and he just casts Jesus uh, into the darkest possible place he could. He knows what crucifixion involves, and he does not care, even though he knows Right, that Jesus is innocent. Oh, friends, this is so blameworthy. This is so blameworthy. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine someone who would know that there is, no, think about this, that there is no blameworthiness in Jesus Christ and yet would cast him aside? Can you imagine anyone like that? I hope you can. Because it might be you. Nobody. It doesn't matter how many specials PBS generates during the Holy Week season or Lent. Nobody ever finds a flaw with Jesus. Nobody ever finds something that says, aha, he's morally blameworthy. Sure, they may find it or they may think they found it uh, in Jesus' followers, but never in Jesus. Do you know why? Because there is nothing. And do you understand what that means? This is not a history lesson. This is God in his mercy intersecting with your life and, present, and mine and presenting before us the truth of his son. And his son is innocent. And so the question becomes for each of us, is his innocence going to change our lives? Though it didn't change Pilate's. Pilate is not a victim of circumstance and neither are you.
You can't find a single promise that Jesus ever broke. You can't find a single moral flaw in Jesus. So what is it, my friends? What is it then that leads you to hold yourself back from this Christ? That's the first fact established in his trial, his innocence. The second is that he is defenseless. Now, that's amazing. Pilate, we should be even more amazed than Pilate because because Pilate's not the only one who knows that Jesus is innocent. Jesus knows that he's innocent. Right? Jesus knows that he's innocent. And yet, he leaves himself defenseless. Why? Why? Why does he mount no defense? Why does he not even say they're lying? Why? Well, Jesus has been preparing. He's been thinking about Pilate for a long time already. He's been thinking about his appearance before Pilate for a long time. He's been preparing for this moment for a long time. Just think back to the third time he predicts his death. I know it's a long time ago that we were in chapter 20, but just listen to what Jesus taught his disciples in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. In other words, he's going to be delivered over to the Jewish authorities, and they're going to condemn him to death. That's a prediction of the trial that happens in front of the Sanhedrin that we looked at last week, but it doesn't end there. Verse 19, and then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus isn't caught off guard here by anything that's happening. He will pass through the hands of the Jewish leaders into the hands of the Romans. He knows this and has known this all along to be crucified. Jesus, friends, Jesus knows what's coming. See, you just have to be amazed by this. You can't just take that in stride. Why? Why is he defenseless? Wouldn't he? I mean, this is so contrary to what we would think because we've been taught that in the cause of truth, you should stand up and challenge every error. Well, there has never been a greater error ever uttered on planet Earth than that Jesus is guilty and deserving of crucifixion. Why doesn't he stand up if he's the way and the truth and the life, friends? That should puzzle you. He's not surprised. He knows what's coming because he knows who he is and he knows why he has come, which is simply another way of saying that he knows his own name He knows his own name, his name, and he embraces, he understands his own name. He knows his name is Jesus because he has come to save his people from their sins. He understands that that's who he is, and he embraces the meaning of his name with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and all of his strength. This belongs to him. He knows who He is. He knows why He has come. And He knows that the only way for Him to achieve the beautiful triumph of saving His people from their sins is for Him to give Himself up as the suffering servant. 
of Isaiah 53. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I want to show you something. It's on page 614 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 53. Jesus knows who he is. Verse 7 and 8. Over 700 years before Christ was born, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Do you see that? Those are, there are bookends between the beginning of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And the bookends are oppression. Oppression. And in the middle of the bookends, I mean, it's just, there is no better poetry than the poetry in the Bible. No argument. Okay? Oppression, oppression. And in between, silence. Silence. Friends, all his life, all his life, Jesus had studied and meditated upon Isaiah 53. And it was like a mirror to him. He held Isaiah 53 up before him, his face, and he saw himself, right? He saw, this is who I am. This is why I've come. This is what it means for me to be named Jesus. And not only was Isaiah 53 a mirror that, held, that was held up to his face, it was also a roadmap. It showed the way that he would go. So long before Pontius Pilate ever stepped foot in Palestine, Jesus was already knowing, already preparing, already knowing what his strategy at trial would have to be. More than that, what he wanted it to be. What he wanted it to be. He not only knew, but wanted it to be so. That he would be the victim of the miscarriage of human justice so that he might be the one to establish divine justice in the forgiveness of sinners. Jesus was not a robot. Oh, this was costly to him. Friends, Jesus doesn't defend himself before Pilate, not because he doesn't have a defense, but because his people have no defense before God. Jesus mounts no defense on his own behalf before Pilate because he is mounting the defense of his people before God. He leaves himself defenseless because, friends, if we could see what our sin means, we would understand that by our sin, we have left ourselves defenseless before God. Do you understand that, my friends? You have no argument with God. You have no defense. There are no mitigating factors. There are no extenuating circumstances. No defense before God. There is not a single human being who can say, yes, but. Paul says in Romans 3.19, right, that the law shuts every mouth. No one will have anything to say to God. There is no defense. 
the testimony outside of us in the world, the testimony of God's word, the testimony inside of us, of our conscience. We know there's a God. We know there's one God. We know he's eternal. We know that he has created everything. We know that we have been made to worship him, and yet we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Friends, there is no argument there. We can pretend with each other, but there is no pretending in the presence of God. We are defenseless before him. Do you really imagine that whatever suffering you have endured will outweigh your moral guilt before God? It won't. It can't. Your suffering is not unique. I know that's hard to hear. It's hard for me to say it to you as a pastor, but it's the truth. Your suffering, your trials are not able to exceed the reality of your moral guilt and accountability to God. You are defenseless before Him. Every mouth is stopped before God. Oh, friends, Jesus' defenselessness before Pilate is like a mirror that the Holy Spirit holds up to us so that we, to each of us this morning, so that we can see ourselves as we really are, to see ourselves through God's eyes, to see ourselves without any defense, to stand before God with no defense and with just guilt. Friends, do you feel the weight of that? Jesus had things to say to Pilate. We have nothing to say to God. Nothing. Do you feel yourself utterly bereft of any way out of your guilt? Until you do, that will not amaze you. Until you do, you will not be grateful. You will assume that God's love is in some measure a reward for your good behavior. And nothing could be more blasphemous than that. And Jesus' defense, see, we just have all we have, all we have, the only contribution we make to our own redemption is the sin from which we must be delivered. We have no power to cleanse. We have no power to atone for ourselves. We have no power to expunge the sins or, or the sin or the trace of sin. We have no power to bring about a remedy of our sin. Only God can do that. And in order for God to do that, Jesus had to stand before Pilate utterly defenseless because he was identifying himself with us completely but Jesus' defenselessness before Pilate's not only a win, not only a mirror it's also a window oh friends what love what love must be in the heart of Jesus Christ to put himself in that position what love what love for his people would, how great must this love be that it would carry him down to the depths where he would submit himself to the mockery of a, maybe as many as 600 men in that battalion to be in the center of their viciousness and their cynicism and their cruelty. What love would keep him there? What must that love be like? Friends, that's the kind of love that has purchasing power like I was talking about before. That love is very terrifying 
Because it means that there is nothing, no part of our lives that it does not have full and legitimate right to claim in totality for itself. That, that love, that kind of love, which is the, the, the greatest power in the universe, right? Self-sacrificing love. That kind of love has the power to purchase our loyalty and our deepest sacrifices. And so if you're a non-Christian, my friend, you know what that love has the power to do? It has the power to purchase your defensiveness before God and to take it away from you so that you can be honest about your guilt before him and your need for a savior. Because, And the only thing that can make that safe is that you might be loved that much. His utter vulnerability is a picture of the utter invincibility of his love for any and all who will entrust themselves to him in repentance and faith. My Christian brothers and sisters, to look at our advocate leaving himself without an advocate, oh, what is that purchasing in your life right now? What darling sin is there? What ambition that is contrary to the will of God? What what idol, what thing that you're treasuring? It could be just the desire to be left alone. What is it that you now see as the Holy Spirit is ministering the word of God to you? What is it that now comes into view as something that this love of Jesus actually threatens your ability to hold on to that, and it's calling you to relinquish? What is it, friends, in your life? I know it's something. But Pilate isn't the only judge Jesus stands before. He also stands before God, his Father. And we've seen that Pilate isn't only an unjust judge, but a corrupt one who's willing to pervert justice for his own advantage. This is exactly the kind of judge God hates. God hates that kind of judge. Look with me. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 17. And uh, page 540 in your pew Bible. Proverbs 17. Look at verse 15. It's very interesting. And I want you to think about Pilate here for a minute. He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, now Pilate does both those things, doesn't he? He justifies the wicked, he releases Barabbas, and he condemns one he knows to be righteous. So on Pilate's judicial watch, the innocent suffers while the guilty goes free. But this, this raises a really important question, and I wonder if you're already asking it. When you look at the cross, wait a second, isn't that exactly what God does? Doesn't God condemn the righteous in the gospel, condemns his son? And doesn't he justify the wicked, us? How is God, do you see the problem? How is God not only like Pilate, but actually much worse? Much worse. Because Pilate, 
Pilate had reason, strong reason to believe that Jesus was innocent, right? But Jesus' father knew perfectly that Jesus was innocent. Pilate releases Barabbas. He knowingly exchanges the innocent Jesus for a single guilty person. But what does God do by the cross? Well, he exchanges a single innocent person knowingly, the innocent one, for a great multitude that is too many to number, according to Revelation 7. Isn't God doing exactly the same thing in the gospel that he says he abominates in Proverbs 17, 15? That's that's a really important question. How is the cross... I mean, think about some of the, let's, let's add in a little bit of Apostle Paul here, right, in Romans 4, 5. Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. God, now think about that in light of Proverbs 17, 15. God justifies the ungodly. And Paul's not hiding that. He's saying, this is the glory of the gospel. How is that not a miscarriage of justice And how is God not the miscarrier of his own justice? Because to justify the wicked, my friends, means two things. It means that you look at at the wicked and you say, you're forgiven. But it means something even more than that. When you justify the wicked, what you are doing is you are not simply pardoning the wicked like a you know what a presidential pardon is a presidential pardon just says okay all the consequences of your of your uh crime those are now erased okay that's that's just a pardon but to justify the wicked means you you pardon them as just the start and then secondly on top of that you add the declaration the positive judgment that that wicked person has actually fulfilled God's moral standard so what God does in the gospel is shocking and he does it by his son's condemnation Here's how I understand the answer to this tension. In Proverbs 17, 15, the human judge, right? There's a human judge being pictured. And in order for him to justify the wicked, he has to sacrifice justice, doesn't he? He's got to sacrifice justice in order to justify the wicked. He can't have it both ways. Something's got to go. And the reason he's an abomination to the Lord is that he casts righteousness aside and he rewards the wicked instead of punishing them. But friends, God is not like that judge. He's utterly unlike them. Do you know what happens in the gospel? It's absolutely amazing. This, again, this is one of the reasons I I just continue to be convinced of the of the Bible and of the truth of Christianity is because the gospel is so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Only God could design it. Because you know what happens in the gospel? Through the, uh, the substitutionary death of Jesus, God... Wow, I'll simmer down. 
God covers wickedness with forgiveness in righteousness. He covers wickedness with forgiveness in righteousness. He justifies the ungodly in a godly way. He does not set, he, he pardons, he's the sin pardoning God without being a sin condoning God. He justifies the ungodly in a godly way that doesn't sacrifice justice, but satisfies justice. When you look at the cross, friends, do you only see the grace of God? I hope not. Do you only see the mercy of God? I hope not. Do you only see the love of God? I hope not. I hope you see the justice of God. I hope you see it. Because in the gospel, God the judge does not sacrifice justice in order to justify the wicked. He sacrifices his son. He sacrifices his son, and in sacrificing his son, he doesn't sacrifice justice. He satisfies justice. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Which is, uh, I'm, looking at, I'm going to look at verses 23 through 26, so it's on page 941 in your pew Bible. So we start at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem of sin, right? And it's universal. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see what God's response is to our sin? Is the gift of justification. Now, how could that gift be procured? How could God give justification in Christ Jesus? Verse 25. See, when you read the Bible, you know what, you know what happens in the Christian life? Is your mind is made alive by the Holy Spirit. You, you think much harder and much more clearly. One of the, one of the, the, the faults, I think, of Christians particularly before non-Christians, is that so often we're just lousy thinkers and we're lazy thinkers. The Christian, because the Christian's brain is being transformed by God's word, there's nothing more brilliant than the Bible. There is nothing more profound than the Bible. There is nothing more beautiful than God's word. What should be happening in the Christian life is as our minds are following God's thoughts after him in the Bible, guess what happens? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're not lousy thinkers anymore because God's not a lousy thinker. And we're not lazy thinkers anymore because God is not a lazy thinker. And what you're going to find is that your imagination is central to sanctification. Central. Not not peripheral. Central. So you say, after verse 24, that was a sidebar. Come back. 
Some might have thought that was a rant. Okay. Come back to verse 25. How is God going to give the gift of justification to sinners? How's he going to justify wicked people? Well, the redemption is in Christ Jesus. What does he do with Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the death of Jesus? To be received by faith, a sacrifice of Jesus, is how God justifies the wicked. But, you know, if that sacrifice of Jesus, that, that could just be the sacrifice of justice, right? No. God is not sacrificing justice. Look, keep going on. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And Paul says it again in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God designs a way to justify the ungodly in a godly way. God finds the way in the substitutionary death of Jesus to justify the wicked without sacrificing justice by sacrificing his son. He finds a way, the only way in the universe to cover wickedness with forgiveness in righteousness. Hallelujah. It is brilliant. We should stand in awe. Because this was not our idea. This was not our design. This was not our doing. And it is certainly not what we deserved. And God did it. So he's not like the judge of Proverbs 17, 15. You know what the cross is, friends? The cross is like a class action lawsuit. We were talking about this in the leadership class a couple of weeks ago. You know what happens in a class action lawsuit? Here's what happens. You have a court, and you have, you have some parties who appear before the court, and they have claims against somebody. And those parties uh, are representative of a whole bunch of other people who are too numerous to all be brought into the court at the same time. That, that have basically the same claims against the other party. And so what the court does, and there, you know, there are some really cool requirements, but I'm not going to bore you with those, okay? But what happens is, because I'm, I'm trying to help you understand what God accomplished at the cross, okay? So what happens in a class action is the court, the judge, certifies that those people who are before it will be the class representatives, and they will represent all the class members. And then the representatives of the class then make their case against the other party, and whatever judgment the court ultimately renders, either for or against the class representatives, is binding on and applies to all the members of the class. Now, in order for them to be representatives of that entire class, they have to be similarly situated with the, the members of the class. Well, you know, what, you know what Calvary was, friends? Calvary was a special purpose tribunal that God created. And he appointed Jesus Christ, his only son, 
as the class representative for sinners. And Jesus was similarly situated with every sinner whom he represented on Calvary. He shares our nature, right? We know that he was tempted as we are in all things, yet without sin. The only thing about us that he did not share before the cross was our sin. But on the cross... He was made sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, made all the sins of his people for all time, all the liabilities of all of Christ's people, all who would ever trust in him, were gathered into Christ, and God, in the special purpose tribunal, transhistorical, issued his judgment against, he fully and finally, and to his eternal satisfaction, litigated, God litigated all all his claims against everyone who would ever be found in Christ to his eternal satisfaction. He answers justice. He takes his claims against us and litigates them against Jesus in full satisfaction of his justice. It's absolutely brilliant. And so now everyone who binds themselves to Christ in repentance of faith, including the people who are here. By God's grace, benefits in full, has all the benefits of Jesus' absorption and exhaustion of the full wrath of God because God issues a verdict over Jesus that he is the sin bearer. He issues another verdict over him that vindicates him when he raises him from the dead so God has not condemned the righteous eternally. He issues a two-part verdict for Jesus so he's vindicated the righteous when he, when he raises him from the dead and now everyone who trusts in Christ has the full benefit by God's grace of all that God has accomplished in that special purpose tribunal. Friends, this is utterly essential to your life as a Christian. If you don't understand this, if you don't understand that God has satisfied all of his justice fully and unimpeachably against your sins, that he has not only forgiven you, but forgiven you justly and righteously, unless you understand that and can rest in that and you understand why that is the case, then you will lead a haunted life. Even as a professing Christian, you will be haunted because your conscience will not be as free as Jesus died and rose again to make it. You will constantly live life on the Lamb, L-A-M. You will, your own conscience will often testify against you. Your own conscience will, contrary to the gospel, will often try to relitigate claims that were adjudicated fully at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Do you not know that experience? The, my favorite moment in the service every week is the assurance of pardon because that is my experience. How do you answer? And then the accuser comes up. Because the reality is there's a lot of bad stuff in our history. So what do you do when it's brought back up on the screen? You preach the gospel to yourself. You believe the gospel. 
And the gospel, my friends, is greater than God's mercy. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is greater than God's mercy. It's greater than God's grace. It's greater even than God's love because the gospel is also the good news of God's justice. His perfect justice so that his grace and his love don't wink at unrighteousness. They don't overlook unrighteousness, but they have their eyes wide open to the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and all of his work by the cross. Friends, the Christian pleads justice. That's why John says in our assurance of pardon that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, what's the word? Just to forgive us our sins. Why would he need to tell sinners, who forgiven sinners who have just sinned, and need to confess their sin again, that when God forgives, he forgives justly because he understands the way the human conscience works. One day, right, one day, we will not be able to sin anymore. But he knows how the reality of sin works on the human conscience. And so he reminds us in the gospel of the full justice of God in forgiving the sins of sinners. God is is utterly unlike Pilate. He's not a judge like Pilate. He hasn't sacrificed justice to justify the wicked. He sacrificed his son to satisfy his justice. There's a foundation there, my friends, that you can build your life on that will make you bold, that will make you secure, that will free you. And it is the justice of God. Jesus has done all the work for you as the class representative. Don't live in a way as though he had failed or faltered. Don't live in a way, refuse to live, renounce every inclination or motivation in your life, every thought that would would go against the grain of what Jesus has already accomplished and what God his Father has already said is fully satisfied. Who do you think you are? You're not a victim. You're, You're just full of unbelief. But finally, there's another judge Jesus stands before today. God, in his grace and his kindness, has convened another tribunal in this place. And he has brought forth evidence about his son. And he has called forth witnesses about his son by his word and his spirit. And most amazingly of all, you know what? In this tribunal that God has convened this morning, he has appointed you. You singular, the presiding judge in the trial of his son. This is a trial by God's design and his kindness. Jesus is being evaluated. You're sitting in the judgment seat. Jesus is in the dock, as it were. 
before your conscience. And you throughout this entire service have been judging him. You have either been vindicating him or you have been condemning him by your indifference. You have either been going out in love and adoration to him, passing the most positive judgment that your heart is capable of upon him with gratitude and awe, throwing yourself at his feet by faith, or you have been holding yourself back in what you might think of as neutrality, but I just want to plead with you to recognize it the way God does. It's hostility. How staggering is it to consider that God has not only given us the opportunity, but the responsibility to sit in judgment of his son. And with that opportunity and that responsibility comes the most consequential liability there is in the universe. There is nothing more significant in your life than what you are thinking about Jesus Christ right now and how you're responding to him. And the evidence that God has brought forward this morning, the testimony that has been heard this morning has established two facts. Jesus is innocent and you are not. And so now you face exactly the same choice that Pilate did. You're at the same fork in the road as he was. So will you, will you choose Jesus? Are you choosing Jesus? Or are you choosing your own Barabbas? Are you preferring your Barabbas, your darling sin, your ambition, your dream, your desire to live on your own and to not have somebody else be Lord over you? Is it a relationship? Is it an ambition? What is it? What are you doing? You're at exactly the same fork in the road. You're facing the temptation to punt, to try to kick Jesus down the road like a can to foist him off as someone else's responsibility. Some of you are thinking that in 10 minutes I'm going to be out of here and I can finally go watch what I want to watch on TV. Oh, friends, that's the kind of thing Pilate was thinking about. You can learn from his folly. You can't save Jesus from death, but you can be saved today by his death. Pilate, he just embodies and he epitomizes all the things that we try to use to avoid Jesus, all the strategies, all the paths that we try to run down, all the rationalizations. He just embodies them perfectly. The, the ways, the strategies that we adopt to evade responsibility for Jesus Christ. And friends, every single one of them is a dead end. We are responsible for Jesus Christ. You I am responsible for Jesus Christ. God says that to whom much has been given, he's going to expect much from them, and much has been given to us. We're responsible for Jesus, not on our terms, but on God's, because God says that we are. Pilate didn't choose. He didn't wake up saying, I want to be responsible for Jesus Christ this morning. It didn't matter. Maybe you came to worship to see a friend and you didn't wake up this morning saying, I hope to enter into my responsibility for Jesus Christ. Well, God has made you responsible for him today. 
God has made, made Pilate responsible for Jesus Christ by presenting his son to him, just as he is doing before you and me right now. Pilate didn't get a postponement, and you should not assume that you will either. Now, now is the moment of decision. Now is the time. God is confronting you with his son just as he did with Pilate, but, but really in a much more serious way because when Jesus stood before Pilate, he was on a very different side of the cross from the one that he is on now. Jesus stood before Pilate. He sits on a throne in heaven before us right now. And there are 2,000 years of unbroken proofs of his lordship and his goodness. And all of that is now before us. And God is, has brought that testimony before us this morning again. And now none of us can escape. So I have one question for you. And I am addressing Christians, those who profess to be Christ, just as earnestly as I am addressing non-Christians. What is your verdict? Have mercy, oh God, so that we might feel the weight of our lives and our responsibilities before you, so that we would feel the weight of the glory of Jesus Christ, so that we would feel his, the weight of his entitlement, his rightful entitlement to our entire lives, our love, our best thoughts, our deepest feelings, our, our most faithful loyalties. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.